You can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We'll be wrapping up Romans 12 today. On this All Saints Day, I want to begin with the words of a well-known saint, uh, someone who is often thought of as being the father of Western Christianity, and that is St. Augustine of Hippo. And I love this quote. He says, what is perfection in love? Love your enemies in such a way that you would desire to make them your brothers. For so did he love, who hanging on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today we look at Romans 12 at how the church, meaning you and me, at how we posture ourselves towards the world. Last week we looked at how we posture ourselves towards each other, and today how we as followers of Jesus should approach the whole world, including, and perhaps especially today, our enemies. So let's hold Augustine's words in our minds this morning, because both he and Paul are pointing us in the same direction, which is to Christ and to the example of Christ. Do you read along with me this morning as I read this aloud? Romans 12, 14 through 21, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Now, any good Bible teacher is going to point you guys initially to the context of this passage, which is the church in Rome. Spoiler alert, this passage is not about us, at least on the surface. Paul is writing to this church that we have talked so much about in the city of Rome. And if you've been with us, you know that this Roman church, it was fairly small, but it was growing. It was a melting pot of cultures and socioeconomic backgrounds all kind of being smashed together. And it was not only not culturally accepted within the city of Rome, it was illegal under the Roman government. In fact, there is a period of time in the 200s and 300s known as the Great Persecution, where not only was Christianity illegal, but the Roman Emperor Diocletian had made it like kind of the the law of the land that not only are Christians going to be arrested, but we're just going to kill them. So there is this great martyrdom that takes place that is really only ended a little bit later in the 300s by the Roman Emperor Constantine who becomes emperor of the entire empire and makes Christianity legal for the first time within the Roman Empire. And so that's the context that Paul is writing into. And honestly, that dynamic was true for many of the early churches in sort of the Greco-Roman world, especially in the second and third centuries. What I want to do today is I want to start by kind of dividing these verses up because there are a number of commands that we saw in this text. I want to divide them up into a couple of subgroups. 
And the first subgroup would be a group I, I just call seek peace, verses that are directly related to seeking to live at peace and at harmony with the rest of the world. Not just other believers, not just people who think the way you think or who like the things you like, but with everybody. And, and you have to realize how important this would have been for a persecuted church. So verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep, which is a call to what? It's a call to empathy, isn't it? That as the church, we would seek to empathize with people, even if we don't fully understand them or their situation or where they're at. We want to be happy with people who are happy. We want to rejoice with people who rejoice and weep with those who weep. He says, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty. Don't be above all of this. Don't, don't be separate, but instead associate with even the lowly. Associate with people who are not like you, maybe. Associate with people who maybe do things you don't agree with. Never be wise in your own sight. Never be so smart or so knowledgeable that it actually leads you to distance yourselves from other people. And then he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, because it does not always, right? So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So for a persecuted church, these are some critical commands. Like, how are you actually going to do this thing in this metropolis of Rome where what you believe, what you do is illegal? Well, first of all, we're going to seek to live at peace and harmony with other people, and we're going to seek to care about them. But the second group of verses, the second group of commands, I would call love of enemy. This is like verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, not just in the sight of the church, but in the sight of all. And then beloved, never avenge yourselves, never seek revenge, right? Never, never seek to like facilitate justice on your own behalf, but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, here's a big takeaway for me in all of this. Even though the church had enemies, even, the, even though Christianity was illegal, even though the church clearly had people who were against it, Paul is not calling the church to retreat into hiding here, is he? That, that seems like, man, if we want to sustain this, if we want to be okay, it, it, it maybe would seem like we need to like, find a hole to crawl into for a few hundred years before this becomes okay. But that's not what Paul does. Instead, his instructions are actually calling the church to engage with the world. And, and this is all about how we do that. This is how we engage with the rest of the world. No matter what the situation is, no matter what the cultural milieu is, this is how we do this. And honestly, I think the assumption was not simply that the church had enemies, but more than likely that th those enemies would continue to grow. Because the church was not shying away from the gospel, like it wasn't shying away from the mission of Christ. So surely, as, as we continue to go out, as we continue to engage in missionary efforts, not only here in our city of Rome, but, but in other places, surely the number of people who are against us are going to increase. But in no way is this a call to retreat, is it? It's a call to press in. Paul's not coming up with this stuff on his own either, by the way. Some of these things may sound familiar to you, and that's because, as we said earlier, man, he is pointing us not only to the example of Jesus, but he is pointing us directly to the teaching 
of Jesus. For example, do any of these things sound familiar to you? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's straight Jesus. That is straight from the mouth of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul is like, he's, he's pulling this stuff. Um, another one, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. The way of Jesus is radical. The way of Jesus is radical not simply because of what it is, but because of how different it is from the prevailing cultural norms of our world. And what's crazy is, no matter how culture has changed, this has always been radical, right? Culture has changed dramatically from the time of the first century church to the world we live in today. This has always been radical. This has always been perpendicular to the culture. This has always been a completely different way of living life. So Paul's words are not only bathed in the teaching of Jesus, they are also bathed in the example of Jesus. This is how Jesus lived. Remember the Augustine quote that I read at the very beginning? He mentioned Jesus' words on the cross in Luke 23, which were what? All these people, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Even in the moment of his greatest agony, the son was appealing to the father on behalf of his enemies. Another great saint of the faith who has gone on, a little bit more recent, is Dallas Willard. Somebody who's very much shaped the way that I think about uh, my faith and the way that I follow Jesus. Here's what he says regarding those words of Jesus. When Jesus hung on the cross and prayed, Father, forgive them because they do not understand what they're doing, that was not hard for him. What would have been hard would have been for him to curse his enemies and spew forth vileness and evil upon everyone, God and the world, as those crucified with him did, at least for a while. He calls us to him to impart himself to us. He does not call us to do what he did, but to be as he was, permeated with love. Then the doing of what he did and said becomes the natural expression of who we are in him. So the call to follow Christ even though we talk about emulating Jesus all the time, and that's clear in Scripture, the call is not just simply to do the things he did. The call is to be as he was. It's literally not just for our actions or behavior to change. It's for the essence of who we are to change, which think about just that phrase being born again being transformed by the renewing of your mind, as Paul talked about a few weeks ago. All of these things are pointing to this new life that comes within us when we follow Christ in faith. And it's not just a behavior change. It's an inside-out kind of change. Don't miss this, though. Our natural mode, when we're like cornered, is not to spew out love, right? Like our natural mode is to spew out hate when we feel like we're threatened. It is our natural mode not to bless, but to curse. And, you know, the call of Christ, as so eloquently put by Dallas Willard, 
is not just to try to do things, but to become like him, permeated with love, so that the doing becomes an outflow of the being. We live in a world where the concepts of love and blessing and cursing even are so confused and so like all over the place that I think these teachings could be received in a variety of ways by a variety of people. Um, Like in your mind, what does it mean to bless another person? What does it mean to bless another person? Well, in today's world, it seems to me like most often blessing has to do with possessing things. I'm blessed to have this money, or I'm blessed to have this fancy house, or I'm blessed to have this husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. I'm blessed by stuff. So what does blessing your enemy mean? Does that mean you need to give your enemy things? Like if, if I gave you guys an assignment this week and said, I want you to go out and I want you to bless five people this week, what, what would you do? Like if you went out and, and were intentionally, specifically trying to bless people, what, what do you think would be the most natural thing that you would do? My guess is more than likely you would come back and say things to me like, well, you know, we were eating lunch on Tuesday and we left a $50 tip for our waitress. We blessed her. It would be, I, I gave something to somebody else. Let me show you this. Let me nerd out with you for just a moment. The Greek word for bless is the word eulogeho. Eulogeho. And most literally, like the most literal understanding of this word is that it means well words. It's actually a compound word in the Greek. So E-U, you, means well, as in good or as in like healthy. The rest of it, the root is logos, which is the Greek word for word. So the most literal understanding of this is well words. Um, But a definition... And the way that this word is translated most often is this, to speak well of, to speak well of. So if you think historically in the context of the church, if you go to a pastor or priest and say, would you bless me? What's that person going to do? They're going to speak something over you. And and this is something that goes all the way back to the people of Israel. In fact, every week when we end our service, we speak an Old Testament Jewish blessing over each other. May the Lord bless you and protect it. We speak it over each other's lives. And so that's what this is pointing at. Um, and, and so it's like, how do you bless somebody in the context of Scripture? You speak well of them. And to be blessed means to be somebody who is well-spoken of. And if you are somebody that's well-spoken of, I mean, life is good, right? You have a good reputation. People think highly of you. And as a result, things are good. So how do you bless somebody? You speak well of them. So it shouldn't be surprising that in our text, verse 14, blessing is presented in opposition to what? Cursing, right? It says, bless your enemies. Bless and do not curse them. So so cursing 
in the same way is not profanity. That's not necessarily what we're talking about here. Cursing is literally speaking a curse over somebody. Like literally saying, I hope you die. Like to hell with you. So Jesus blessed his enemies, praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prayed for their good, even though they were not good, right? Pray for those who persecute you, Jesus said. To curse them would have been to pray, Father, I want you to kill them violently and burn them all in an eternal fire forever. I mean, like that's, that would be the opposite of what we're talking about. So that's what Jesus modeled for us. Now, here's something I do think we need to make mention of. Jesus would speak truth to power, right? Jesus would not speak untruths about his enemies. Jesus wouldn't say they were something that they were not. We saw that in our text earlier today in our gospel reading, in the way that Jesus spoke of the Pharisees. Jesus called out sin, and he called out hypocrisy, and he called out abuse of power. But in all of those things, he was speaking truth, and in none of those things does he, like, curse them, right? But he, he does speak truth. And so I, I think we have to temper this. This is not a call to say things about your enemies that are not true, but it is a call to pray for the good of your enemies. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. So now here's the strange thing about the times that we live in. Our culture now thinks of enemies not as people who are like trying to kill us per se, even though that is true in some contexts. But here in America today, we primarily think of our enemies on some level uh, as just people who think differently than us. I mean, that's, that's how much this has devolved in our culture today. Supposedly, we live in this very accepting, open, liberal, relativistic society. But in practice, I'm really only willing to accept you if you think what I think. And if you don't think what I think, then you need to be silenced, or you need to be canceled, or you need to be shut down. You are now the enemy. Your lack of agreeing with everything I think or do is a sign, not of love, but of hatred, right? If you don't agree with me to a T, then you hate me. Or if you don't affirm everything about what I do or what I say or who I am, then you hate me. So to take that kind of rubric and apply it to the life of Jesus, we would be saying, well, when Jesus didn't affirm the abuse of power and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, that he was hating on them, right? That he hated them. And that was not the case at all, right? Jesus loved them deeply, even though he completely disagreed with who they were and how they lived and what they did. Unfortunately, this way of thinking is just as true in the Christian community as it is in the non-Christian community. And, and let's not even like get started on the political division and vitriol that we see today. Because to be one side is to be labeled a baby killer. And to be on the other side is to be labeled a racist. And so I don't know about you guys, but it could be you're sitting out there this morning going, I don't really feel like either of those things. So I'm not really sure what to do. And this is because neither political party is the way of Jesus. Remember, it's perpendicular. 
it's a completely different way. One theology student and blogger that I saw, and I've shared this with some of you because I just thought it was so well put, says this, biblical Christianity will seem centrist, meaning kind of in the middle of the political spectrum. Biblical Christianity will seem centrist at times because it will critique the ideologies of both the left and the right, but it's not politically centrist. It's not a moderate political ideology. It's politically transcendent. It exists outside of that whole world, that whole spectrum. It's a category by itself. It's the ethics of a kingdom that's not of this world. I thought that was so well put, that this is what this really is, the ethics of a kingdom that is not of this world. So what does it look like to bless your enemies today? I think it looks like following the example of Jesus, which is founded on the ethics of God's kingdom and the example of God's kingdom. What does it look like to bless your enemies today? Guys, I think it means praying earnestly for those who are opposed to or who think differently than you. If your mode is to like call out or clap back or shut down those who think differently than you on social media or maybe in real life, but probably not in real life, we're being honest. It's probably happening online. If that is your mode to shut people down because they think differently than you without even considering, earnestly praying for their good, then you clearly do not love them. Right? That isn't the posture of love. Let's silence people. The posture of love, as evidenced by the way an example of Jesus is, to earnestly pray for the good of your enemies. Here's again Augustine. He's really helpful here. He says that your enemies have been created as God's doing, that they hate you and wish to ruin you as their own doing. What should you say about them in your mind? Isn't that a great question? how should you think of them? How should you consider them in your mind? And he says, say this, Lord, be merciful to them. Forgive them their sins. Put the fear of God in them. Change them. You are loving in them not what they are, but what you would have them to become. The beauty of buying into the kingdom of God as the primary lens through which you see the world is that it gives you the ability to step out of the muck and the mire of just everyday life and see what is real and true, which is we don't need a savior because we already have one. We don't need a king, because we already have one. And no matter what transpires in our world, we know what is to come, because we know what is true in Christ. And when we follow the way of Jesus, and we step out of the things that everybody around us are telling us we need to be afraid of and worried about and concerned about, it gives us the ability to earnestly pray for the lost around us, for those who are opposed to us, 
to those who are our enemies, to those who think in a completely different way than we think, to the point where how should we think about them in our minds? Not as people to hate, not as people to like shut down, but actually to take the words of Paul and go, these are people that we should seek to rejoice with and weep with, that, that we would, should seek to empathize with because we want to show them the love of Christ. We don't have to agree with them. We don't have to affirm everything about what they do. We don't have to speak things that are untrue. but we are called to bless and not curse. Why? He's pointing to it here. We give people what they don't deserve because we've been given what we don't deserve. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth of your word as always. And as we consider some of the implications of this for our lives, Father, it could be possible that there are people who come into our minds today, people that we wrestle with or struggle with or disagree with, maybe even people that we feel like we hate. And God, more than anything, if, if there's a takeaway for us today, I pray that it is, a, is this, that we would recognize the incredible power and privilege that you have laid in our laps to be able to bring these people before you in prayer and to pray for their good and to pray for their heart change and to pray that you would save them, that you would not count their sins against them, no matter what they've done to us, Father, we affirm today that vengeance is yours. It's not our responsibility. God, help us to love those who are different than us. Help us to love those who hate us. Help us to love those who are opposed to us. And may we evidence it in our lives by continually bringing them before your throne of grace. Lead us with your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.